Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 16. There are two unique parables in this chapter, and we looked at the first one about the unjust steward last week. Saw there a picture of a man who was willing to use his resources to do whatever it took to provide for himself, and Jesus holds that up as an example to the type of resourcefulness that is needed in the Christian life. And uh, now uh, Christ goes on here to tell a second parable, this one about the rich man and Lazarus. So let's give attention to God's word. You can find this on page 1205 if you're using the, the Pew Bible. This is the word of God. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who would want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to his people. When I was growing up at home, there was a young man who was on some sports teams with me and was in our church, actually. And um, his father died suddenly uh, while we were in school. And this, uh, this friend's father was a very fit athlete. I think he was in his 30s probably in that time. And uh, very athletic, very um, accomplished. And uh, one night, in the middle of the night, he was gasping for breath and his wife uh, woke up to find him struggling to breathe and she uh, tried to do CPR and by the time the paramedics got there, he had died. And, and it turned out, uh, the, it wasn't con- conclusive, but it seemed like there was some heart defect that maybe had been there all along and uh, just at this moment, uh, just t- turned out to manifest itself. And so someone who outwardly looked to be the picture of health, uh, inwardly, Uh, there was a problem there that had gone undiscovered. And then in an instant, uh, it's revealed what's going on beneath the surface. And in many ways, that is how our spiritual lives are. 
Um, our lives can look one way on the outside, and uh, things can be going along, and it looks like everything's fine, uh, but it, inwardly, spiritually, things aren't fine. And uh, sometimes you see this in very high-profile ways when there's a, a well-known Christian who falls into tremendous sin, and what, what's going on on the inside kind of comes out. For, for a lot of us, that kind of thing doesn't happen, only perhaps when... Um, we show signs of anger or fear or impatience that are brought on by circumstances uh, that we're dealing with. And we get a little window on what's going on inside of us. Well, uh, this parable Jesus tells to people who were very satisfied with their outward situation. And so they were very complacent about their faith. They were outwardly successful, but Jesus is pointing out that doesn't tell you anything about the status of your soul and what your spiritual condition is. And so the lesson that he has for us this morning is a good one for us, people like us who are respectable, who come to church, uh, who aren't out uh, breaking the law and this kind of thing. Uh, we need to hear this lesson that reminds us that our spiritual state is the most important thing. And so the main point I want us to notice as we look at the passage this morning, I've given it to you there in the bulletin. You and I are prone to being self-satisfied and indifferent. That's a constant temptation to us. But Jesus suffers, suffers the fate of the self-satisfied and indifferent to save you and me from certain disaster. And we'll see uh, how this comes out in the text, Lord willing. Children, if you want to draw a picture for me here, uh, draw a picture of these two men that we're, gonna, that we're reading about, maybe a before and after picture, that what these two men look like before and then at the end of the parable, and uh, listen for what this teaches us. If you'd like to follow along in the outline, you see the first thing we want to notice is that you are prone to being self-satisfied and indifferent. We see this in verse 19 of our text. Well, the parable, as I said, is found only here in uh, the book of Luke. And it, it follows the one we studied last week, where we have this uh, sort of troubling scenario where a man is very unscrupulous, he's dishonest, uh, but that gets commended in this parable by Jesus saying, uh, this man was resourceful, we need to also likewise be resourceful. Now, if you look in verses 14 to 18 in this chapter, there's a little interlude before this parable that we read this morning begins. And you'll notice who Jesus has in mind as he's giving these parables. So verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. So Jesus tells this story. And that last parable, you remember, he ended by saying, you can't serve God and mammon. So they, they mock Jesus for this. Jesus doesn't really know what's important. And so Jesus says in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And so he's, he's addressing them in this parable. People who are self-justifiers, people who are satisfied with their own righteousness and their own situation, and because of that, don't care about the people around them. They're indifferent to those people. And so Jesus, in verse 19, introduces us to one of two characters in this second parable in the chapter. There was a certain rich man. Go look at verse 1 in chapter 16. Starts the exact same way. There was a certain rich man. These two parables go together in terms of the message that they're teaching. So what do we know about this certain rich man? In verse 19, he was clothed in purple. 
Uh, purple dye was incredibly expensive in those days. You had to, to make it, you had to extract pigment from a, a marine snail. So you'd have to collect thousands of snails and then process them to get this dye that was incredibly expensive. So anyone who was dressing in purple um, wasn't just wealthy, he wanted everyone to know it. Right? This is a, way, a, a great show of his wealth. I suppose this would be like somebody finding a place to drink Kopi Luwak, which probably only the Burtons know what this is. This is the most expensive coffee you can buy. It's like $600 a pound, maybe $50 for a cup. The reason it's so expensive is because the coffee beans pass through the intestines of a civet and then are harvested after that. Now, who would want that? I don't know, but people pay a lot of money. It's one of those things that's a status symbol. And this the idea. This is a man who's flaunting who he is and what he has. In addition, it says he wore linen undergarments. And uh, this, of course, would have been unusual. Fine linen um, that uh, you could only get from Egypt, uh, fine Egyptian cotton. So uh, while many people were, were dressed very modestly in rough, coarse clothing, he has linen on. And it says that he fared sumptuously every day. This was his routine. Every day he's feasting, every day he's dressing this way, every day he's showing that uh, he has success and that he has everything he needs. And, and this is what the Pharisees, as they listen, they're thinking, well, this man must be righteous, right? God has blessed this man you're talking about. This outward success would be evidence of inner spiritual health. But Note, the fact that he's feasting every day means that he's not observing the Sabbath. He's making his servants work on the Sabbath, which he was not supposed to do. Furthermore, he has this poor man laid outside his gate. And you notice at the later stages of the parable, he knows Lazarus's name. He says to Abraham, hey, send Lazarus. He, he's not unaware of what's going on right outside his gate, but he's completely uh, impervious to helping his neighbor. And so we, we see this situation. It's obvious to us this man has problems, even before we read the rest of the parable. There are problems there. But I'm guessing if you would have challenged him, he would have said, no, I have no problems. Look, look at my house. Look at my clothing. Look at the way I'm eating. Look at my servants. In other words, right, my material blessings are evidence that God is pleased with me and that everything is okay with my soul. And I wonder how much this kind of thinking can slip into our own minds as we will justify and, and sort of decide that, hey, things are going pretty well. Uh, I like my job, I have friends, my family seems to be doing all right, I'm, I'm able to go to the gym and stay fit. The, I look at these outward things as evidence that my spiritual condition is good. And it can be very easy to trust in our external situation instead of in Christ. And one of the things that happens when we do that is we, we become uh, shut off often to the needs of others around us. We become indifferent. 
And children, you may think about this yourself. If, you, if somebody asks you, how are you doing, and you only think in terms of what your grades are and how you're doing on the sports team and whether you have friends, then you're not thinking about that question in its fullest sense. How you are doing spiritually. Are you loving God and loving your neighbor? So recognize that there's a tendency that all of us face to be self-satisfied and to become indifferent towards the needs of others. Secondly, we're reminded here that your outward condition is not a good indicator of the condition of your soul. So here in verse 20, we're introduced to the second character. There was a certain beggar, it tells us, named Lazarus. And he's sort of the antithesis of the rich man. It says that Lazarus is full of sores, that he was laid at the gate. So he's crippled in some way. It's almost like uh, other people bring him and drop him like a sack of potatoes outside the gate of the rich man. He's not able to move on his own. He's a beggar because he has no money and can't provide for himself. And the level of desperation that's shown in verse 21, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And uh, some commentators uh, argue that here what it's talking about is that as the people ate and feasted, they ate with their hands, and often as your, times as your hands would get greasy, you, you could wipe your hands off on pieces of bread, throw them on the floor. This would be akin, him wanting to eat that would be akin to somebody wanting to lick the napkins off after a meal at your house. Like, just give me a, a napkin to lick. I'm so hungry. That's the situation. And his wretchedness is, is highlighted by the fact that the only uh, organisms that care for him, seemingly, are the dogs who come to lick his sores. The dogs who are doubtlessly fed better than Lazarus, they actually show an interest in Lazarus and they lick the sores. And so this man would have been seen as disgusting. He would have been ceremonially unclean. And the Pharisees, whom Jesus is speaking to, would have assumed this man is under the judgment of God. But the amazing thing, of course, about the parable is how utterly unrelated one's outward condition is to the state of one's soul. That's part of the point here. Lazarus, that name actually means the one whom God helps. And that would have been quite ironic to call them the one whom God helps and then to see him lying there with dogs licking him. Doesn't look like God's helping him, but that's because the external situation doesn't show us all that is going on there. Because here was a man who loved and trusted God, did not complain. It's quite significant. He doesn't speak in this entire parable. He's not complaining. He's entrusted himself to God. And so it leaves us asking then, which of these two men is truly poor? Is it the one with the great riches who doesn't love God and other people, or is it the man who has absolutely nothing but has a relationship with God? James Boyce, in commenting on this, says, at that point in their lives, neither of these men would have willingly changed places with the other. That's a really interesting observation. Lazarus, who knew God, would not give up a relationship with God just to have material wealth. At the same time, the rich man would have looked at his own situation and said, I have everything I need. I don't have a spiritual problem. And he also would have been willing to stay 
in the position that he was in. And of course, this is speaking to the Pharisees. They would be in the same camp as the rich man. They were self-satisfied, they were indifferent to others, and they were trusting in their outward situation. And this is a really helpful reminder to you and me that you cannot look at your external circumstances and determine your spiritual health from that. I think some of the strongest believers I've ever known in my life, I would call giants of the faith, are some of the older folks that we've had in this congregation who have dealt with failing health and the difficulties of old age and have looked forward to death as being with the Lord and have been faithful all the way to the end. And we've had a number of wonderful examples during the time that I've been here. And so what's going on on the outside doesn't tell us the whole story. This is why the Lord said to Samuel when he was told to go and anoint the new king in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's a really good reminder. So this, this rich man reminds you not to make the mistake of thinking that because everything's okay on the outside, that my spiritual condition is good. But Lazarus reminds you not to make the other mistake, which is to look at your life and see problems there and suffering and struggle and say then the Lord doesn't love me because of that. Because as as this parable is telling us, Uh, Those things are not necessarily related. It's all part of God's plan. In fact, some people think Lazarus is a sort of a New Testament Job, a righteous man who is reduced to great suffering, not because he's being punished, but to accomplish the purposes of God. So beware of looking at the outside. Thirdly, at death, we're shown in this parable that at death, the status of your soul will be clearly revealed and confirmed. Uh, We're reminded in this portion of the parable that all of us face death. In verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. He doubtlessly had a lavish funeral and many people from the community came to it uh, while the beggar uh, was buried probably very unceremoniously. And what happens? Well, it says that Lazarus went, um, was carried by the angel to Abraham's bosom. It's important to understand this parable to know what that means. Uh, this is a picture of a feast. He, he, was, he was shut out of the feast on the earth. He's going to participate in a feast in heaven. And in fact, he's going to be seated at a place of honor. You remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 23, And it's describing that scene at the Last Supper. It said, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's how John describes himself. So leaning on his bosom, you see that these people are are reclining at table on couches where their feet are away from the table and their heads are toward the table. And so the person who's, who's on Jesus' bosom is the person who's closest to the head of the table and in that seat of honor. And so what this is saying is Lazarus is carried to the great banquet in heaven, and he's at the seat of honor with the, uh, the people of God. And while we, 
recognize that this parable doesn't tell us everything we need to know about the afterlife. In fact, it's a little dangerous to push it too far. It doesn't tell us nothing about the afterlife. It does say some things about the afterlife. And here, the idea that when we die, those who are uh, Christians are united and they're in the presence of God immediately. I put in your outline the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 37, which asks what happens to the souls of believers at their death. And it says the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So that's what's being pictured here. The resurrection hasn't happened. It it pictures the body being separated from the spirit, but being in the presence of God where our bodies rest, as it were if they're sleeping in a bed. Uh, The the larger catechism goes on to say, in contrast for those who are unbelievers, they're separated from their bodies, uh, but they immediately go into torment, as also is described here, uh, and are under the wrath of God, and their bodies wait as if in a prison, is the way the catechism describes it. And so this is what it says, in fact, in verse 23. While Lazarus is received into heaven, it tells us that the rich man is being in torments in Hades. And so Hades is a, is a Greek uh, concept of the, uh, the place of the, the dead, uh, the underworld. Uh, Jesus uses the term Gehenna most often to describe uh, the place of judgment. Gehenna was a trash dump outside of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus talks about perpetual fire, perpetual worms, and uh, just the idea of in a trash dump where things are always decaying, always rotting. That's the Jesus' uh, favorite image uh, for the place of judgment. And so what's fascinating here, if you realize the structure of this parable, we had feasting and famine in life, and now we have feasting and famine in death. Uh, but the tables are turned, of course. And the person that's feasting is changed. And the person that's in famine has changed. And notice what, what it's very clear is that once we die, it's too late to change your mind. Right? That's very clear here. That uh, it's too late to do anything about it that, uh, that your fate, in a sense, is sealed. Now we have to be careful here because verse 25 has been used uh, by some to say, well, uh, God, that's what the afterlife is. God just reversing the tables on people. So uh, Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus is evil things and now he's comforted and you're tormented. And so, uh, the, so they almost would, would, would teach as if being rich in itself is the reason why the rich man is tormented because he was comfortable in life. He must be uncomfortable in the afterlife. And uh, Lazarus, because he was uncomfortable in life, gets to be comfortable in the afterlife. And of course, that's nowhere in the Bible, the idea that we're saved uh, by whatever our social status is or something like that. No, the reason this man is in judgment is because he didn't love God, he didn't love his neighbor, and that was manifested in his life. And so what, what we see is that in death, the true state of our soul is revealed and it is confirmed. And so Lazarus, who loved God, is now in a situation where he is growing in grace, growing in perfection, growing in life. 
The poor man is becoming ever richer as he is with God in heaven. And, and, and the opposite is true of the rich man. The rich man didn't love God, didn't love his neighbor, and he now is spending eternity becoming poorer and poorer and poorer. He's not condemned because he was rich, but because he was self-satisfied, he was indifferent, and he was an unrepentant sinner. Uh, The passage implies that he didn't listen to Moses and the prophets in verse 29. And Moses had a lot to say about the way you treat the poor beggar, especially the one that's laid at your gate. I put one example in your outline, Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. And this man walked over top of Lazarus every day and did nothing. And it's a window into what his soul was like. He was poor spiritually, and that is confirmed when he dies. Our daughter is scrambling around right now trying to take her finals uh, before we leave because we're leaving a little bit early. I see there's some people from the school here. It's all been approved, so we're, we're okay. But she's trying to get all the work done because the point is there, there is a day of reckoning. You have to get the work done. And I know uh, the same is true for the McCollum kids also. And even you kids who are going to stay here till the end of the semester, you have the same thing. You have, to, you have to complete the work. And the time to prepare for the final isn't when you're sitting in the room and they hand you the final. At that point, it's too late. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You have to prepare ahead of time. And the parable is reminding us there is coming a day when you and I will have to give an account for our lives. And, and there will be no do-overs. There will be no second chances. And so the time is now to take care of our souls and to make sure that our lives are right with God. Recognize this man, this rich man that's portrayed here, was so self-satisfied, right? He called Abraham his father. He was relying on his heritage as a Jew. Even as he gets into the afterlife, He's still bossing Lazarus around. Only if you notice, he never speaks directly to Lazarus. Because Lazarus is beneath that. He speaks to Abraham about Lazarus. Send Lazarus here. Tell Lazarus to do that. That's how hard his heart was. And the the scary thing is that dying and facing judgment isn't going to remove that sin. It's only going to make it harder, and we're going to grow in that hardness. That's a terrifying reminder. Simon Kistemacher, speaking about this, says, The rich man lived a respectable life, called Abraham his father, and then he spent eternity in hell. The poor man never opened his mouth on earth or in heaven, yet he occupied the seat of honor next to Father Abraham. We need to take care of our souls. Fourthly, we see here also that God's word shows you how to escape the fate of the self-satisfied and the indifferent. This rich man never had an interest in the things of God in life, but it appears that his circumstances at the end of his life, at least 
cause him to think about his brothers. He says in verse 27, I beg you that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. Now Abraham says to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And uh, the man keeps going. He says, no, he argues with Abraham. No, Father Abraham, if one, goes, if one would go to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And the great irony, of course, is that this man had the scriptures. He had access to the scriptures. Perhaps he even attended the weekly synagogue service. And he had heard these things. He had heard things like Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 6, which I've put in your outline. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that amazing? The scriptures talk about a despised rejected, degraded servant as being the one who saves us from our sins. And, and that message is clear. It's clear in the Old Testament. It's clear in the New Testament. And, and recognize that our Savior, we think Lazarus' situation is bad, but our Savior's situation was far worse because in addition to the rejection and the humiliation, he had to endure the wrath of God for the sins of his people. That's how despised the Lord Jesus was. And Jesus is the only way people who are self-sufficient and indifferent to others can be saved from their sins. And of course, what, what Jesus here is communicating to the Pharisees through this parable, a person rising from the dead isn't going to convince you if you won't listen to God's word. In fact, Jesus raised another man named Lazarus, a real man named Lazarus, from the dead. And what was the Pharisees' response? They plotted to kill Lazarus. They didn't believe the message. And of course, the same thing happened to Jesus himself. Jesus came back from the dead and largely, largely the Jewish leaders rejected him. Jesus said in John 5, verses 39 and 40, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The problem isn't the lack of data. The problem is an unwillingness to believe what the scripture says. And it is interesting, the way the parable ends, it's sort of, you're, you're sort of left hanging. Send, you know, what's gonna happen to my five brothers? 
Send someone to them. They have Moses and the prophets. If that's not good enough, nothing is. And it's almost like the question that Jesus leaves this on, what will happen to these five brothers? What will happen to you? What will happen to me? Will we heed what this parable is telling us and take care for our spiritual well-being and put our faith in this rejected servant, the one described in the scriptures? So recognize that God's word shows us the way of escape. We have to realize what a precious precious thing we have in the word of God the way of salvation is here all that we need is here and that's all that the people around you who are lost need as well God has given it to us what a precious thing but we see here also finally that Jesus suffers the fate of the self-satisfied and indifferent to save you and me from certain disaster verse 26 is interesting Because the man says, send Lazarus to to relieve my suffering. And Abraham says, besides all this, there is between us and you a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot. Who is he talking about? Who wants to pass from the place of comfort and glory to where the rich man was. who's, Who's trying to make that trip? Nobody's trying to make that trip unless, unless, while this rich man is crying out in agony, Lazarus is saying quietly to Abraham, I see my old neighbor, and I see he's really suffering. I'll go. I'll go. I think that's what's implied. Lazarus was willing to go and help this persecutor. And think of it. Lazarus lived immobile, festering, starving at this man's gate. He can hear them in their feasting. He can smell the food, and they won't even share scraps with him. And now in this part of the parable, this man is still unrepentant. And what does Lazarus do? He's willing to go and help the man. Kenneth Bailey, speaking about this, says, Lazarus not only refrains from gloating over the rich man's well-deserved predicament, but shows compassion for his fallen oppressor. Lazarus responds to his pain with patience, long-suffering gentleness, and implied forgiveness. And isn't this the only hope that you and I have? The Bible's necessary, but it's not sufficient because we can't believe it unless the Lord Jesus enables us to receive the word of the Bible. And we're never going to believe it on our own. We need the poor, rejected Savior, the one who's willing to cross over that divide to go to the place of torment on our behalf. He left the place of comfort to go to the place of torment so that he could take us to the place of comfort. That's where our hope is. And if you're here today and you don't know that Lord, that's the call for you, is to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who allowed himself to be a despised 
and rejected servant to cross over in your place to save you. But if you are a believer this morning, you need to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And recognizing what what Christ has done should help us to put away this temptation to trust in our outward circumstances or to look to those for our affirmation instead of looking to Christ. And, And to put away this tendency to shut ourselves off from other people, but to open our hearts that we would love and serve one another as God wants us to. This parable reminds you that God's word shows you the only way of salvation. But it shows you that that way is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take heed to your souls. You and I are both prone to being self-satisfied and indifferent to others. But Jesus suffers the fate of the indifferent so that we can be saved and go to the place of comfort where there will be eternal feasting and joy in him. And let's pray and give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of your word in this parable, which reminds us of the humiliation of our Savior and that he willingly crossed over that divide. He left his place of comfort to come and to experience the place of torment as he took our uh, judgment on the cross so that we could be brought into the place of comfort, which we do not deserve, we know that, but how we rejoice, Lord God, for what our Savior's done for us, that we can be participants at the great heavenly feast and that we can have that confidence in you even now. And Lord, so we pray you would help us, help us not to be looking at our outward circumstances to determine what's going on in our hearts. We pray we would look to you We would look to your word, that we would trust in the message of salvation, and more than that, that we would trust in the Savior. And Lord, that you would give us grace that we might live every day with hope in the future. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we'll sing our praise back to the Lord from Psalm 112, Selection A. Oh, praise the Lord, the man is blessed who fears the Lord aright. So it here speaks about the righteous man. We know Jesus was the only truly righteous man, and yet we see how in Christ we are able to be those who live like Jesus lived. And one of the things it mentions here is a, a willingness to minister to those who have need around us, that we're not shut off from others, but have our hearts open toward one another. Let's stand and we'll rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> 